everyone, and welcome to a very unique episode of PTPOV. So this week we are uh, not talking about anything very physical therapy related specifically, but this episode is truly for everyone. We are frustrated, we are angry, but we are here to talk about the overturning of Roe v. Wade and how it impacts women and our healthcare. So please join us, listen to our amazing guest, Dr. Jacqueline Baritono, discuss how restricting access to abortion impacts all women and our medical provider's ability to safely care for us. So listen, learn, please share, know your state rights, and most importantly, for the love of God, get out there and vote. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's special edition of PTPOV. Um, In light of everything that has been going on politically, aka the Supreme Court, um, essentially overruling, overturning Roe versus Wade that was set back, you know, 50 years ago. So we feel like we're going back in time a little bit. We thought that this would be a really good opportunity for us to talk about the implications in the medical health and physical therapy health field. So this week we have with us Dr. Jacqueline Baritono, who is a board certified obstetrician gynecologist who is undergoing fellowship training right now. So thank you so much for being here with us this week. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Jacqueline, do you want to start by just kind of explaining who you are, where you came from, and all the education that you've gone through to get to this point? Sure, absolutely. So um, I basically went to Michigan State, and I did a four-year undergraduate degree there, and then I stayed at Michigan State for medical school, which is an additional four years. Uh, Yeah, go green. and (laughs) Go white. Then after medical school, I completed a four-year residency training program um, in obstetrics and gynecology through the Beaumont Health System in Southeast Michigan. And um, so I graduated about one year ago from that program. And then for the last one year, I've been doing a fellowship program in a subspecialized field called female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. So in that field, we focus on women that have issues with incontinence, whether it's like bowel leakage, bladder leakage, pelvic organ prolapse, a lot of issues that kind of arise after um, they finish having children. So um, I'm just really passionate about helping women and giving a voice to women. And I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks again for, for being here. I know it's hard to just launch into such a heavy topic about everything that's been going on, but um, we'd love to hear from your perspective, um, wherever you want to start, but generally, I mean, how, how this impacts women, specifically the patients that you see on a regular basis. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, in each state, the, the laws are kind of going to be a little bit different. So in Michigan right now, currently, Um, The only thing that's changed, um, women are still able to get access to abortions um, because Governor Whitmer has um, made a temporary ban on the the law that restricts abortion access in Michigan. So that could be overturned at any point. But 
Um, hopefully that's not the case. There's petitions going around that support women's rights, and hopefully we can get it on the ballot in November to, you know, ensure abortion access and to make sure that that's on the state of Michigan's constitution. But right now, big um, organizations like Planned Parenthood, University of Michigan, you're st still able to get access to abortion services at places like this. Um, unfortunately, the Beaumont system where I'm currently practicing has taken a little bit of a stricter approach. They're saying that they're only gonna offer these services to women when they're medically necessary. So currently um, elective abortions are restricted in, in the Beaumont system. And Beaumont recently did a merger with Spectrum Health. So it's like the largest hospital system in Michigan. So that's kind of huge. So even though it's still allowed, it's still completely restricted access in certain areas. So I guess even from a medical perspective, so when I was looking into the history of like Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood and everything, there seems to be a huge discrepancy between what's actually considered medically necessary. Cause at a certain point, it's like the physician is going to know best, but it's the politicians that have this in place. So I guess what is the, like, how do you go about it as a physician when you're like, wow, I feel like this is really medically necessary, but what if that's not how they see it in court? And like, what if I'm the one that has to deal with the legal ramifications for doing something that I felt like was medically right for a specific patient? Right. So I think a lot of physicians are actually, you know, really nervous and scared about the same things. There's certain state prosecutors that are saying that they will enforce, you know, the the anti-abortion laws and and a physician could go up to uh, into prison for up to four years for providing an abortion for a woman. So it's kind of like, how much are you willing to risk for your patient? Um, how much do you trust that the government's going to protect, you know, that this is a necessary um, service that we need to be providing to women. So, um, you know, it's kind of all up in the air right now. And obviously, as Beaumont's decision shows, a lot of people are kind of erring on the side of caution and, and only wanting to give it if it's, you know, going to be like life saving for the woman. And when you even say like life saving, like at, at what point does that get for you? Like, at what point would your brain say like, okay, I have to like, I mean, I've heard a lot on just the news of just vitals crashing. Is that kind of the point of. Right. So I think again, people are like, there's this huge gray area. Is it like 100% certainty? If I don't do this, the woman's going to die. Is that the threshold we need to meet? Or is it like a 50% chance that if we don't do this procedure, that the woman's health will be at risk? You know, so I think that they're, you know, for everybody, that's kind of different. So I think that there's a huge gray area. And so, um, unfortunately, I think a lot of these women aren't going to get the proper care that they need, or they're going to have extremely delayed access to the care that they need, because it's going to get to the point where, you know, it's, it's a no brainer decision at that point. At that point, I guess, what do you think is the lobbying power of the AMA and ACOG specifically? Because I was reading those, about Kara? another case. <laughs> Sorry. What so are... <laughs> the American Medical Association and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, okay. they've been very vocal <laughs> about everything that's been going on right now. So Sorry. <laughs> 
but um I guess like what do you think that their power is especially compared to like years previously where it's like maybe they didn't have as strong of a voice but I feel like in a situation like this where this has been in place for 50 years in this country like what power do they have to be like we should really be the voice in making these decisions and not the government like what power does that even hold do you know you know, I want to say that they hold a lot of power, but I do still kind of feel like the power is like with the people. So I feel like if we get it on the ballot, that's going to be the you know biggest thing is getting voters to ensure their own access to this type of medical treatment. Um, I do feel like ACOG and the AMA have some say, um, but, you know, don't discount organizations like Planned Parenthood and things as well, because they've already been taking like huge actions to ensure this kind of care for women everywhere. I have a question for you, Jacqueline. Um, what would be your response? So to, you know, not necessarily a real argument, but I feel like a lot of people who are, you know, pro-life and and for this abortion ban, they're they have this belief that every abortion is because someone had irresponsible, unprotected sex, and now they're going to get an abortion as, as the response. Like, what do you say about, you know, abortion as healthcare and, you know, those kind of cases where it's, it's not that black and white. Absolutely. So I feel like there is a lot of people that kind of think about it as, you know, like exactly like you said, somebody that was fooling around, didn't take the proper precautions, but that's absolutely not the case. That is the majority of the time. A lot of the time it is because of a medical issue that the woman has. I've seen patients who, you know, are actually excited about their pregnancy. And then at nine weeks pregnant, they find out that they have you know, metastatic breast cancer and they need immediate chemotherapy. And they're told the chemotherapy won't kill your child, but you know, your child's going to have all these potential side effects from the chemotherapy. What do you do? You know, you're still early on enough in your pregnancy where it's would be considered non-viable. And so I've seen patients that opt to um, have an elective abortion, just that they don't have to prolong treatment to themselves. And they don't have to have, you know, this thought of, what if I'm harming my unborn child by seeking medical care for myself? And that's just something that they don't want to think about while they're trying to heal and get well. You know, I've also seen patients that just have interesting social situations, patients that are going through a divorce and they already have two kids with the person that they're trying to separate from. And then they have, get pregnant with a third and they don't want to raise a child with somebody that they know isn't really going to be in their life. So, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why women get abortions and kinds of women get abortions, um, married women, unmarried women, young women, old women, you know, it's, it's really not a black and white issue. Absolutely. And that's not to discount the people who are, you know, in that category, because as a woman, you get to make that choice, but you know, I, I, I like to hear those other cases, the gray area that, you know, most of us live in. <laughs> the real life. Mm -hmm. That was a great question, Carly. Kind of going off the train a little bit, but I know what they were talking about was how this might affect other decisions that have been made in the past too, in the Supreme court and possibly overturning those because of the way that the Supreme court is swinging right now. But has there been talks about how this could be affecting access to contraceptives and things like that? Absolutely. There was, um, let me just scroll through because I wrote a note here. Uh, so I wanted to comment on that. Yes. Grace yes. us with your wisdom. 
So, um, Justin's Justice Clarence Thomas apparently said that um, when he was giving the opinion, um, he said, because substantive due process decision is demonstrably erroneous, we have a duty to correct the error established in all those precedents. So everyone is kind of freaking out and thinking, you know, what rights could be next. So the main one that they seem to be focusing on is the access to contraceptives. And so there was a court case back from 1965 that Kara's probably referencing. It was the Griswold versus Connecticut case. And um, that basically is when the Supreme Court ruled that married couples should have the right to obtain contraceptives. And they said that a state's ban on the use of contraceptives violated the right to marital privacy. So um, after that court decision, it you know ensured everyone's access to be able to have contraception if they choose to do so. Um, but since similar logic could be applied as in the overturning of Roe v. Wade could be applied to this as well, um, that they say that it could possibly be overturned and then that right would go back to the states at an individual level as well. Um, if that were to happen, the most likely things that would be targeted would probably be emergency use contraceptives. Those would be things like plan B um, for, you know, like the day after pill as it's called, um, and also intrauterine devices. So IUDs, which they can be used for emergency contraception and also just for general contraception as well. I heard something, I don't know if this is valid at all, but that there are certain types of IUDs that might be in trouble, like the copper ones, because they let the process go on too long. Is that true? Um, so, so there's certain, everyone says like, when does a pregnancy or when does a life start? And there's some people that view that it starts at conception or fertilization, like before it even implants into the uterus. And so theoretically the copper IUD is the, it's actually the, considered like one of the most effective forms of birth control. And it's the one that you can use the longest amount of time from, um, from when you had unprotected sex. So things like the day after pill, you're supposed to use within about 72 hours after the event of unprotected intercourse, whereas something like an IUD can be placed, I believe up to like seven days after the event. So you get a little bit more time. So some people are saying by that time, the pregnancy could have already been conceived. And so theoretically they think that, yeah, that could be considered an abortion rather than a preventative measure. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh is right. That's all I have to say. <laughs> um, so I've, I feel like I've been reading a lot about how denying abortions for women, like there's plenty of research on the implications this has down the road, whether it's, um, they are known to live below the poverty line down the road or have a three times greater odds of being unemployed or just statistics like that. I don't know if you know or have heard of anything like that, but is that something that, um, I don't know, is that something you encounter or is being considered anywhere as a possible negative implication of all this? Not sure if I... 100% understand the question. Are you kind of, I, I guess. don't either. I'm just rambling. <laughs> yeah, I'll, honestly, I'm, I'm with Jacqueline on this one. <laughs> Lost you a little bit. <laughs> I'm just too upset about everything. I can't even formulate clear thoughts. Um, I don't know. Was there even a question there? <laughs> uh, 
it will disproportionately affect um, women of like low SES status, women of color, things like that, just because if they have to, if abortion has been restricted in their states, then they'll have to, you know, travel to other states. So I know that um, Planned Parenthood in Michigan has been saying they've already been seeing an influx of patients from um, states as far away as Texas to, since this has happened for women trying to seek um, an abortion just because it's so restricted or they can't get, you know, um, an appointment somewhere closer and to their state and in the time period, which it would be considered a legal abortion. So I think that, and also, you know, it costs money to travel. So people may not have the money, especially with gas prices, the way that they are now, people may not have the money to get a hotel overnight if it's, you know, 10 plus hour drive, things like that. So these women may just not even be able to take time away from work or take time away from existing children that they have too. These are all huge barriers to access if we, if they can't get it locally. And I know that was a big struggle of a lot of like the deep South states that have stricter laws. It's like those people have to travel even further because they have to get across like a barrier of red states to get to a state where they can do so legally. Right. And now they're even talking about like just having gone across state lines to get an abortion. Like, is that going to be made illegal and things right. like that? Cause it's right. a state by state thing. So if you live in Alabama and you go to Michigan for an abortion and come back and they find out that you lost the baby, how did that happen? Still being able to prosecute those people. Right. And um, there used to be a lot more um, leeway in terms of telemedicine. So there's, I guess we could go into, um, like how abortion is performed. So there's two types of abortions. There's a medical abortion and a surgical abortion. So the medical abortion is basically a combination of two medications that can the patient can take at home. Um, different states have different rules. So there's some states that restrict access and say that it has to be, you know, basically given by a physician so the patient has to see the doctor in the office for them to be able to prescribe it. Other states are a little bit more lenient and allow them to prescribe it via a telemedicine, which would be great for people that live in states where it's restricted access because they could do a telemedicine encounter with somebody from a different state. But with everything going that the way that it is, there's very few states now that are actually allowing telemedicine visits for, for abortion pills and medication abortions. Wow. The second type of abortion is a surgical abortion. So um, that could be before 14 weeks. So in the first trimester, it's called a suction curatage or a suction DNC or suction aspiration abortion. These are all just different names for the same procedure. And that can be done sometimes in the office or an outpatient surgery center. Sometimes it's done in a hospital. Um, if it's done in a hospital, you're usually under anesthesia for that procedure, but it basically involves dilating the cervix and inserting a um, small tubing through the cervix up into the uterus and then attaching a vacuum type suction device to the opposite end of the tubing. And it's basically clearing out the contents of the uterus. So it's more effective. It's about 98% effective. There's very few complications. Um, and then this, a similar procedure is performed after 14 weeks. Um, it's called a DNE or a dilation and evacuation. It's essentially the same procedure, but sometimes you need some more surgical instruments just since the pregnancy is a little bit more progressed than just the suction vacuum suction. And these are relatively safe. 
absolutely. There's very few complications. And especially when, you know, physicians and providers can freely practice and make decisions with their patient and not have to worry about, um, you know, are we meeting all the criteria and these things? Um, because if the care is delayed, the later the abortion, you know, the farther along it gets, the more, a little bit more complicated that it gets higher rates of bleeding, higher risk of infection, that type of a thing. So um, if the earlier that women are able to get access and if they're not delayed access or um, prevented from obtaining access, then they are very, very safe. Do you happen to know off the top of your head what the safety looks like? I mean, I know it's not good, but what the safety looks like as far as illegally performed abortions, if there's any statistic? There's not a ton on statistics because prior to Roe versus Wade, there wasn't a whole lot of great record keeping mm. because it was such, you, it was just so taboo. You didn't talk about it. There was a huge stigma. So there's really not a whole lot of actual data, which was kind of surprising, but then also not surprising at the same time. But yeah, since it, everything was to some extent legalized and because the practice was so much more common, it was like the physicians that were doing these procedures were very good at them. So within like a couple of years, it became like, oh, like very, like less than 1% complications, a 2015 systematic review of the aspirated, the uh, vacuum aspiration abortions, there were zero mortalities. There were no deaths at oh my all. Gosh. It was very safe. <laughs> especially just with the evolution of medicine for things oh, like yeah. if people had infection or sepsis, like antibiotics had come a really long way. So it was easily treated. And there's no, I mean, the other argument that I've heard from the, the I can't even call it pro-life group. Cause I don't even feel like that's what it is. We're going to just <laughs> call it the anti-women group, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but have you, there is no, um, or is there any effect on fertility following an abortion? So current data suggests that there's no effect on future fertility. Um, there is one condition called Asherman syndrome, which sometimes very rarely, probably like less than one, less than 0.1% of the time can happen in case after a surgical abortion, but it's typically after multiple and it's not, doesn't have to be an abortion. It can just be like a DNC procedure that you'd have for a different indication, but the more DNC type procedures that you have, it could increase scarring within the uterine cavity, which could cause some issues with fertility down the road. But so that's called Asherman syndrome. Mm -hmm. It's extremely rare, but it theoretically can happen, but medication abortions have shown absolutely no effect on future fertility and the majority of surgical abortions should have no effect on future fertility, especially if it's the woman's first time undergoing the procedure. Here to elaborate for some of our listeners what a DNC is. Yeah. So um, a DNC is basically where um, you want to use these metal dilators. You dilate the cervix, which is the canal that leads up to the uterine cavity. Um, so the cervix is the lower portion of the uterus, which can actually be seen and felt inside the vagina. Um, you'll dilate the cervix open and you'll put in a curate curette type instrument. So it's basically um, almost like a gentle scraping of the inside lining of the uterus. And you want to get rid of any additional tissue, just leaving the uterine lining intact. 
So um, this can be done for women who have heavy periods or abnormal bleeding. Sometimes it's done in women that are postmenopausal and have bleeding. There's a ton of different reasons why you would do this type of a procedure. And um, it's basically the same type of procedure that would be performed in the case of a surgical abortion. If it's in the first trimester, it's typically done with suction. And if it's in the second trimester, it's typically done with suction and instrumentation. It just blows my mind that you are a medical doctor describing a medical procedure that you do to treat folks. And people are like, no, no, there's no. It's like if a cardiologist was describing doing a cardiac procedure and they're like, I don't like the sound of that. Stop to that right now. It blows my mind. I think like the image of like the, the DNC type procedure, the surgical abortion is quite graphic, but in reality, that's so few, like over half of the abortions that are performed across the country are medical abortions. So it's just women at home, you know, their own home, taking the medications and basically having like some cramping and bleeding. Yeah. Uneducated people. (laughs) So I don't know if you know the answer to this either, but do you know the state right now that has the, the best abortion rights or the most expansive, I guess? I've heard that, um, like the top three, I believe are, um, on a, it's California, New York, and Oregon, I believe, are three that have um, very liberal laws, and a lot of patients are going to be seeking care in those states. Also, another, this is, I, my brain is just not even tracking in a linear line, so sorry for everyone listening, but um, another thing I've heard on on the news and um, have heard friends talking about was a woman or actually a friend of somebody that I know had a miscarriage. I can't remember how many weeks, I think it was 18 or so, um, maybe even less, but she was in New York and it was fine. They were able to take care of it. So what happens to women in States who miscarry late in their pregnancy, who do not have abortion rights? So that's a really interesting question because sometimes even just having a, like, you know, we call it after 20 weeks, it's called, you know, it will be called a stillbirth. Um, But before that, or it could be called intrauterine fetal demise after 20 weeks as well. So anytime you're having a fetal demise, it can lead to complications within the woman. They can have preeclampsia, elevated blood pressure, they could go into eclampsia, they could seize, um, they could develop sepsis from severe infection from this pregnancy that's now no longer viable. So typically you would administer mesoprostol or cytotec is a different name for it to basically induce the patient to deliver the contents of the uterus. And so women that may not have that option if the use of this medication is being restricted in their state. Um, you know, I, I really don't know what's going to happen. I think I have a hunch that most providers now would say that this is medically necessary. Um, I don't know that I would call it potentially life-saving for the woman until she developed a severe infection or went into sepsis, but absolutely it's not right to wait for that to happen. So I think that a lot of providers are 
probably going to take the risk. I feel like I would take the risk and give the medication and hope that, you know, the courts support you in your decision to just provide the proper care for your patient. Well, I think something like that happened. It was in Ireland in 2018. It was actually not that it matters what her profession was, but she was in the medical field. She was a dentist and she was pregnant. And I forget at what point, but it was like the fetus wasn't uh, deemed viable anymore. It was a health issue for her. And basically she was just told like Ireland is a Christian nation. Like you can't have, because at that time the abortion laws were so strict and nothing was ever deemed to be life-threatening to her until she actually like started dying. And then she actually died because nobody did anything for her. So she and baby gone, but then that led to the whole state of Ireland, then coming back and overturning this policy. So now abortion is actually legal there, but it kind of started with this woman. Actually, it was overturned in 2018. The woman, this whole situation was in 2012. That's what happened. So it took a while, but they did overturn it with like two thirds of the whole voting in favor of it. So who is going to sacrifice their life for us this time? (laughs) This is absurd. Probably a lot of people. (laughs) Yeah, no, actually a lot of people. I just think it's, I'm trying to translate this into my own practice. And obviously we don't prescribe medications, but if I had to like weigh the cost benefit of potentially getting my license struck down. And I mean, I don't even know what potentially going to prison, is that what could happen? If, if they, if the court were to say like, you can't do that. Yep. You could use your, lose your medical license and go to prison for up to four years. Like if I had to decide between that or giving someone a long art quad post their total (laughs) knee replacement, I just, (laughs) I can't imagine the amount of stress that that has to put on you and your colleagues in that situation of we are taught to care for our patients to the best of our ability and do everything in our power to care for them. But now we have to look out for these courts and this legal system and how do you protect you in that process too? Absolutely. And I think um, it's also important to note that like the number of abortion providers has actually been steadily declining in the United States in the recent years anyway. So there's already so few providers that are willing to provide this service. And so when you start restricting access in states where some of these providers are practicing, or if you start, you know, threatening legal ramifications for providing services, then it's only going to hurt the situation. Um, I think I saw a stat that said in 2017, there was about 1500 facilities in the United States that provided abortion. So it was about like 800 clinics, only about 500 hospitals and maybe about 250 physician private offices. So there's really not that many places for people to go to begin with. And this is only going to make the situation even that much worse. I can't, yeah, I, I just can't imagine having that kind of stress on a daily. And in addition to all the stress of your patient, just having a miscarriage and you trying to be there for them. And now you're saying, I don't know how to help you. How, what do you, what are you guys doing in those situations? I mean, do you, do you have a lawyer? Do you have like a company legal counsel that you can, or is it just like the same process? You're just writing your notes and prescribing medications and knowing the laws and just hoping. Yeah. I think as of right now, everyone is 
I don't know that anyone's getting like a lawyer to begin with, but I think people are just trying to do their best. And um, a lot of the Michigan um, legislature is saying that they won't prosecute if physicians are providing these services just because there is that temporary ban on the previous law. Um, but at, at any point that could be overturned and then how far back do you go? You know, it's anything could really happen. So I think a lot of people are really just still in this gray zone. And unfortunately it's so few providers that are in the gray zone. Um, so they're kind of taking, you know, most of the stress on for, for everybody else. Hmm. Oh my gosh. Do you have any advice for anybody who needs to seek this type of abortion care? I mean, you mean like advice at, in regards to being able to seek a, abortion care if they decide yeah. to, um, I guess I would say, you know, just know the laws in your state and be prepared and have a plan um, and know that it is still available in, in many places. You just have to seek the right providers. And I know that there's a lot of people that are committed to um, securing this right for women, this health care um, necessary healthcare service for women um, of all types of women. So um, I would just say my best advice would be just know, you know, what's going on in your state and um, research how you can help if it's something that you believe that women should have access to. There's petitions that you can sign and things that you can do to secure that, you know, this right is available to you in the future. I just signed one in Arizona. Yeah. Hopefully we, we have enough notaries. <laughs> That's our issue right now. <laughs> there were a lot of locations and they had to be turned in by the deadline of July 5th, which so, is right now when um, we're recording this. Yes. Um, <laughs> do you, Karen, so, and Carly, yeah. do you guys have any other questions for, for Jacqueline? Well, Jacqueline, we like to end our podcast with a game, but today we're going to keep it a little shorter and just do a little lighthearted question so that we're not all in tears when we end this. Um, but so we're going to, everyone's going to answer this question um, of, or just, should we just have Jacqueline do it or should we all do it? Let's all do okay. it. I'm not prepared for this, but that's fine. Um so the first question is right in your heart. <laughs> the first question is the f your favorite place you've ever traveled or you've ever been to, and then part two is what is your bucket list travel destination? If you could go anywhere, no cost, feel free. Feel free. Give me a second to think. About I know that. if Car Carly and Carrie, you guys can go too if you want to. <laughs> My favorite place, and I was only there for five days, and it was the only time I ever went to Europe, and it was for a PT conference, so I didn't even get to do everything that I probably should have done while I was there, but uh, Geneva, Switzerland. Switzerland was so pretty, and the transportation was so efficient, and I didn't need to learn a different language because most people spoke English, which is a very American horrible thing to say, but it was very <laughs> nice. <laughs> 
and uh, the place that I would like to go is Banff in Alberta, Canada. Because it looks so pretty. And I told Andrew that we should go there for our honeymoon. And he said, no, but we'll go a different time. (laughs) At least you get to go a different time. Yeah. He said it wasn't relaxing enough to be a honeymoon. So he's like, we're going to do that regardless, but maybe let's do something a little bit more laid back, all inclusive for honeymoon. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I I see where you're, where you're coming from. Okay. (laughs) I would say probably my favorite place I've ever traveled to, um, was Isle Royal national park. It's the only national park in Michigan. It's an Island off of the upper peninsula and it's super remote. We had to take a seaplane to get there. And it was just like really nice to be there for a long weekend without any cell phone service. They have like moose that live on this Island. That's so cool. (laughs) Beautiful to just get lost in the woods. And it had like the best hiking that I've been to, because I haven't really hiked a lot of places outside of Michigan. So uh, (laughs) I tend to eventually um, my bucket list destination would probably be Thailand. I just Ooh. such cool things in Thailand, and um, they have a lot of elephants. <laughs> That's <Hell> awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Carly, I'm an ass in the sand human being, so the best place I've ever been is Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Oh, that's where we might go on our honeymoon. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I got some recommendations for you. Ooh, um, and the place I would like to go is Bora Bora. Oh, nice. Overwater yeah. bungalow style. Another ass in the sand sort of a situation. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. I feel like I've, I I could pick anywhere right now, I feel like. But um, Victoria Falls in Zambia was probably one of the coolest places. You kind of walk down this path in front of this massive waterfall, like I don't know if it's twice as big as Niagara or some statistic like that, but you're just drenched in water like the whole time. And it's kind of a, a crazy like experience to just be covered and you're not even that close to it because it's just so big. Um, and I've always wanted to go to Ireland and do like a hiking REI has these, has this already laid out and planned out. So I'm definitely stealing their idea, but it's like a, you, you do a lot of hikes as you cross over from one side to the other. And, um, it just looks so pretty. Is that a potential honeymoon destination now that you have a ring on your finger? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) I said, this doesn't cost money and that sounds like it would cost money. So (laughs) well, Jacqueline, thank you so much for joining us today. Your insight was so um, great to hear. And I truly hope that our listeners can take this knowledge and use it to good use and to to fight yeah everybody get out there and vote damn it yes i agree thanks so much for having me it was a lot of fun and um i wish you guys the best of luck on your podcast thank you Jacqueline. thank you so much for joining us for this very special episode of ptpov Like and subscribe to us on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and we'll see you next time.